John did not receive or write the revelation of Jesus Christ while on Maui. (laughs) Nor the Bahamas or at the Sandals Resort in Barbados. We're told in verse 9 of chapter 1, which is where we pick up, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. According to Albert Barnes, the Isle of Patmos was lonely, desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited. It had all the requisites which could be desired for a place of punishment, and banishment to that place would accomplish all that a persecutor could wish in silencing the apostle without putting him to death. Patmos, even today, is a rocky uh, island with rugged terrain, small islands, about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide at its widest up at the northern end. It is a small island. Again, it's isolated and remote. And the early church fathers are all in agreement, as we've already talked about, that John received the revelation on the island of Patmos toward the end of the reign of the emperor named Domitian, whose reign ended in A.D. 96. So we believe the revelation was written around 95 when John was in exile on the island of Patmos. Interesting, the island of Patmos. Patmos means my killing. My killing. Eusebius tells us before the exile that Domitian, whose treatment of Jews and Christians almost rivaled that of Nero... So brutal persecution under this emperor. He punished John first by boiling him in a cauldron of hot oil. And then banished him, sent him off to Patmos. The boiling in oil wasn't necessarily to kill John, just to shut him up. To to show those followers of Christianity, you don't want to do this. This could happen to you. And then send him off to Patmos where we won't hear from him anymore. I think that's marvelous. Because John is sent to Patmos to be quiet and we receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because you can't silence Jesus. You can try. And Christians especially be encouraged in the world in which we live where you feel like sometimes, be it government or or be it people in opposition or just be it the culture, that when you feel like people want to silence Jesus, it can't be done. He is the Word incarnate. And you can't silence the Word of God. For 2,000 years people have tried. doesn't work. So John is sent off to Patmos to die there alone and obscure and forgotten. And ironically, Emperor Domitian died first. Again in AD 96. John was therefore immediately released and he made his way, history tells us, back to Ephesus where he would spend the rest of his days living mostly in Ephesus but then traveling a postal route among the cities in Asia Minor. But that's not just about history and dating the book. Many of the seven churches who originally received the revelation of Jesus Christ, which we'll hear them named tonight, many of these churches were suffering greatly. Not all of them. What we find is the lukewarm church, Laodicea, was doing quite nicely. So we have that standard before us that we as a church can just be lukewarm 
and we can mostly keep our mouths shut, and, and we can try not to rock the boat, and we can go with the culture and be tolerant of all kinds of things, and probably do quite nicely, or we can be a Philadelphia. That's going to make more sense as we get closer to it. But many of these churches were suffering greatly. The timing of the revelation could not have come at a better time. John could rightly say, and does rightly say, I'm your brother and fellow partaker. The fact that he wrote this from Patmos is marvelous because John was there suffering for Jesus, literally. I use that phrase and joke about it sometimes. You know, when, when I hear a brother or sister is being sent off to work in Hawaii, I say, oh, suffering for Jesus. You know, going off this next week, going down to Southern California, I am going to be suffering for Jesus. No, I'm not. But John suffered as they suffered. So for John to write this letter from Jesus and send it out would be from one who understood exactly what was going on in the church of the late first century. It's a great encouragement from the right person at the right time. But of course, the right person wasn't simply John. The right person is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus suffered like nobody has ever suffered. And a letter from the master of all suffering, the one who went through more suffering than anyone who ever has lived, that letter means an awful lot. It's not from someone who you say, ah, well, you know, he just doesn't know what's going on. No, he knows exactly what's going on. Jesus knows what physical pain feels like in the most excruciating degree. I remember years ago, Russ sharing that excruciating comes from the word cross or crucifixion. Because of the intensity of that pain. Jesus knows how to suffer physically. He knows how to suffer mentally. With the barbs and the jabs and the the shame that was foisted on Him by those who surrounded the cross like dogs. He knows how to suffer spiritually, bearing the sin of all humanity at Calvary. So this book, this revelation, comes from one who has suffered. If you have ever suffered, understand, he understands. He knows. And of course, John knows. He he says that he's there, he's a fellow partaker in the tribulation... And kingdom and perseverance. So those are the three things that characterizes John's relationship with the church. Hey, we're all in the kingdom together. And we're persevering together. And we're in tribulation together. We're all in this together as as family. And of course, John was on that island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He wouldn't have been in exile if not for that. He kept quiet. But he couldn't. What is all this tribulation about, really? I mean, we understand it's persecution against the church. It's demonic. That's why it was so strong against both Jews and Christians. Anyone connected to God in any way, anyone who could be part of the fulfillment of the prophecies of God, man, Satan's going to go after, still does today. But there are three kinds of tribulation, if I'm just speaking generically. Number one, there's general tribulation. Everyone gets that. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter who you are. Everybody goes through hard times. Everybody, at one point or another in life, will have tough times. Difficulty in relationships, difficulty financially, difficulty with medical issues. Everybody's going to go through tribulations, little t. Everyone's going to have problems. That's general, and that's really not what John's talking about. There's another kind of tribulation with a capital T, a global 
tribulation. That's the focus of much of chapter 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation. Time of worldwide global upheaval as the Bible describes. Beginning with the wrath of the Lamb, ending with the wrath of God poured out on a world that has rejected Christ. That is a global tribulation. Can I tell you some good news? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the multitude of reasons why I believe the church will be called home before tribulation begins. The tribulation, global tribulation. We all have general tribulation. The world is going to go through a global tribulation, but there's yet a third kind. And it's what I would call a godly tribulation. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can count on it. And I underscore that word godly. You can live on the fringe of Christ Jesus. You can, like I said before, like a Laodicea type church, you can go with the flow and and not raise any ruckus and not stand out as a Christian. You can just kind of be quiet about that, keep it to yourself, and not really suffer so much. But everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus which is a completely different standard than the world, will be persecuted. It's going to happen. There's no avoiding it. You can count on it. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.15, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That is, in the name Christian. To stand out and say, yes, that's who I am because of who I believe. Back in the 70s, it was the Jesus freaks. I like that too. But to glorify God in the name, not to hide away the name, not to be ashamed of the name. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will do the same. Before my Father who is in heaven, I will deny you. Glorify God in the name. Godly tribulation, godly tribulation, however, never comes without building up the perseverance of the saints and the kingdom. So that's why I think it's marvelous John mentions all three of these and they go so well together, tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. They're all part and parcel of the same thing. The walk with Christ is going to be a walk into and toward and for the coming kingdom. Kingdom's not now. Kingdom's coming. And we are citizens of that coming kingdom. And we are preparing for that coming kingdom. Even our positions in that coming kingdom are being prepared. So it's all kingdom. That's marvelous. And perseverance. I like perseverance. Strength for the day. Strength for the week, the month, the year to continue on in faithfulness. That's marvelous. Tribulation is how you get there. Tribulation is just part of the deal. This is not a tribulation, godly tribulation, that gets you down or bums you out. It lifts up your eyes and builds you up. So when godly tribulation comes, praise the Lord. Which is exactly what we find John doing on Patmos. He's praising the Lord. Tribulation builds us up to the coming kingdom and fine-tunes our ears to hear Jesus. Watch this, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
Now, stop right there. Literally, and your Bibles may say this in the margin, so note this, he's not saying, I was in the Spirit. He says, I was in Spirit. There's no definite article. I was in Spirit on the Lord's day. Reminds me that Jesus said, John 4.24, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit. That's what John's doing here. He's worshiping in Spirit. He's in Spirit. You know what that's like? When you're in the midst of worship, in the midst of fellowship, the Holy Spirit is there, you're there, brothers and sisters are there, and we are in Spirit. And it's not like Spirit is a football game. It's not like, I've got the Spirit. Yes, I do. I've got the Spirit. How about you? Shouted back and forth. To be in Spirit is to be in the place of worship and prayer in the very presence of God. The implication here is, when John says, I was in Spirit, is that he was in the presence of Holy God. Domitian meant for him to be isolated and alone. He was with Jesus. He was in Spirit. You might even say, I would go so far as to say, John was under the influence of the Spirit. Not as in under the influence of alcohol, which brings about drunkenness. What did Paul say? Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of influence I'm looking for. Because with the Holy Spirit, remember this, Isaiah 11.2 comes wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Man, put me under that influence. And John is in spirit. Wherever he was on Patmos, we can assume that he was... Worshiping, he was in the presence of the Spirit of God. He was praying. Praying in spirit. What was he praying? Ever wonder that? He's in spirit, having a little worship service here. What exactly was John praying? Because if you're in spirit, you're praying. You're communicating with the Lord. Well, reading on, he says, I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. What was John praying? I think he was praying for the churches. Because the immediate response of Jesus is, write this down and send it to the churches. John is praying for the churches. Would you be? I think I would. Try to put yourself in John's roughed up sandals for just a moment. You have been ripped away from family, friends, fellowship, everyone important to you. You have been sent off in exile to Patmos. You are there by yourself, isolated on this island. And finally, after, you know, because I'm thinking, I'm putting myself in this position after whining and weeping and being a wimp, you know, I finally sit down and realize I've been asking for a sabbatical. (laughs) So here we are, Lord. But you begin to think about the people who matter, about your family and and your friends and perhaps your fellowship. And you start to say, Lord, I just, I hope, I hope back at the bridge. I just hope they're worshiping you. I hope they're in your word. Protect them. Be with them. Lord, help them. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, write this down and send it to the bridge. I am convinced that John was praying for these seven churches, specifically. 
Which is why Jesus responds in the way He does. It's just like Daniel. In fact, the parallels, and you'll see a few tonight, between John the Apostle and Daniel the Prophet are marvelous. Amazing. Because Daniel was doing the same thing. In Daniel chapter 9 of his prophecy, Daniel realizes that the time is almost over for their exile in Babylon. Daniel's in exile, just like John was exiled. And he realizes the time's almost up. So he begins to pray. And if you read Daniel chapter 9, the first several verses are Daniel in prayer. And he's crying out on behalf of his people, Israel. And he's confessing their sin. And he's talking about their, you know, their lack of faith. And as Daniel is praying, suddenly Gabriel comes and gives him the most vital prophecy, especially for unlocking the time frame of the revelation. Gives it to him in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel was in prayer. And immediately he got response to that prayer. Praying for the people of Israel. So the response was for the people of Israel. Well, guess what? So here's John in spirit on the Lord's day. And his immediate response is from the Lord saying, I want you to write to the churches. And I think the book of Revelation is actually one big answer to prayer. As John was praying, God said, all right, now's the time. What if John hadn't been praying? Huh. His answer, the answer given to him, went out unsealed. Daniel's answer was sealed. Write this down, but seal it. Hold on, because they're not going to get it right now, Daniel. But this revelation is an unsealed revelation. Send it out now. Send it out immediately. It was sent out to the churches And it was sent out for the perseverance of the saints. To encourage the churches as they receive it. But not just just these seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But all of the church across the church age. Because as we recognize in Revelation 2 and 3, that the seven churches completely represent the church. The entirety of the church. And the, the specificity of this is remarkable. I'm looking forward to getting into that. A week from Sunday as we open up the second chapter and we start to peer into these seven different churches and what's really going on. But John is praying for the churches and Jesus says, send some letters to the churches. But let me ask you this, when was John praying? When was he praying? On the Lord's Day, right? Look back at verse 9. Because the Word of God, testimony of Jesus, uh, says, I was. Where is it? Is it 10? Oh, yeah, it's 10. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday. Right? I don't think so. I don't think so. Saturday, perhaps. Shabbat. A good Jew on the Lord's day. Well, Shabbat is never called the Lord's day in Scripture. By the way, Sunday. Worship, the first day of the week, is never called the Lord's Day in the Bible. Not a single time. What about right there? Okay, well, if you want to say the Lord's Day here is Sunday, and it's Sunday morning, and John is in spirit on Sunday morning, well, then this would be the only reference in the entire New Testament to the Lord's Day being on Sunday. What are you saying? I'm saying, I don't think he's singing, I'm easy like Sunday morning. Some assume that this means Sunday. We, we do so because culturally we use it like that. You may even have said, oh, boy, looking forward to the Lord's Day. 
We refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. You know, that's American Christianity. That's not Middle East Christianity. That's not historical Christianity. They didn't call it the Lord's Day. They called it the first day of the week. So what's he talking about here? John was in spirit on the Lord's Day or in the Lord's Day. Perhaps that means, I think it means the day of the Lord. You see, the Lord's Day or the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now that's a phrase that is used 50 times in the Bible. The day of the Lord. Joel writes about it. Joel chapter 2, not our Joel, but the prophet Joel. He writes, Joel chapter 2 verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, listen, we read something like that and we go, well, that's not very happy. Oh, happy day. Sweet, happy, gloomy day. The day of the Lord is not a day to look forward to. Because the day of the Lord is also the time of Jacob's distress. The day of the Lord speaks of, begins with night, begins with the tribulation. We've talked a lot over the years about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that like the Jewish day does begin in darkness. Gloom and thick darkness begins at night with the tribulation. But the day of the Lord will then have a dawning of the kingdom and continue on toward eternity, at least toward the end of the millennial kingdom. But the day of the Lord begins just as Joel declares... He says, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it. Anytime the Bible says that, you've got to look forward. Because there's a day coming that is unparalleled. Nothing like it has ever happened before. It will be a final thing, this, this tribulation that we will be talking about. Nor will there be again after it to the ears of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. It goes on. He says down in Joel chapter 2, verse 11, The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. I want to be in that camp. In fine linen, bright and clean. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. His camp is great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? And noted Bible scholar John Walvoord said, John was projected forward to the future day of the Lord as he received the revelation of the unfolding of the end times. And that's what I would agree with. When John says, I was in spirit on the Lord's day, he was under the influence of the spirit and projected to the day of the Lord. How do you know that? Read the book. Because once he sends the letters to the churches, with the exception of the scene in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, we will get into the day of the Lord that John sees all too clearly. The day of the Lord. Well, back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Moses did a similar thing. Exodus chapter 3, verse 3. Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. Which, by the way, was an unusual thing in Moses' day. 
When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. There's something going on there. There's a dynamic. God waited for Moses to turn and look. And when he did, then God spoke. God waited for the turning. Same with Daniel. I already mentioned Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Because Daniel gave his attention to the Lord, the Lord gave answer to his prayer. Because Moses turned to the Lord, a deliverer would be sent to the people. I mentioned Moses and Daniel because Moses, Daniel, and John have a lot in common. Three old men. Three exiles. Three pastors concerned for a flock and all three giving their full attention to the Lord. And because all three gave their attention to the Lord, God did big stuff. Moses. Moses. Had Moses not been attentive to God, would there have been a deliverance? Now, I, I think there would have. God always has a plan. If Moses had you know, bowed out, someone would have been the deliverer, but who would have delivered Moses? Had Daniel not given his attention to the Lord, would we have the key that unlocks the revelation in the 77s of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27? You don't have to write that down. We'll get there. We'll talk about it. What if John had not turned? What if on Patmos, John dismissed what he thought his ears were hearing? What if John broke out of being in spirit and just said, did I hear that? That's weird. And went looking for bananas. What if he hadn't turned aside to look at the voice that was speaking with him? Would John have missed seeing Jesus? Have you ever done that? Been in the presence of the Lord? Felt like you were near? But then you didn't turn aside. You may have missed out on seeing something. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 30, verse 20 says, Your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Listen, when your ears hear a a word behind you, turn around and look. When you feel like the Lord has impressed something on you, look to Him. Ask Him about it. When you feel like the Lord has spoken, seek confirmation. You know what's interesting? When you look back in the Hebrew Scriptures to the story of Gideon, and God told Gideon what to do, and Gideon was uncertain, so he put the fleece out. And we still use that phrase today. People don't even know what they're talking about. I put out the fleece. What do you mean? Oh, I don't know. I tested it. Well, we test the Lord. You know what? There's nothing in that story that tells us that the Lord was frustrated or angry or upset with Gideon for confirming the word. So John turns to confirm, wait a minute, what am I hearing here? What's going on? God gives revelation to those who are attentive to His voice. Those who dismiss His voice have a hard time hearing and will continue to have a hard time hearing. But John was attentive. And thankfully, because John there on Patmos had determined to be in spirit, he was caught up to the day of the Lord, caught up to unimaginable things that He wrote down for us, and we have that to go through now. He was transported in spirit for revelation. And the church, we need to hear this 
We need to hear it so critically, so desperately, that Jesus said it seven times in Revelation 2 and 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have an ear? What's great about that, he doesn't even say two ears. You don't even have to have two ears. Just one will do. If one got torn off, you know, just one ear. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Let's look at what John saw. Now I warn you, you may even have read this before. It is not what we expect when we talk about Jesus. It's not what we typically think. So brace yourselves. I turned, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. One like a son of man. A human son, you might say. John looks, he sees these lampstands. And as per John's standard throughout this book, he'll tell you exactly what the lampstands are. You probably already know. But he sees this one among the lampstands, and the first impression of John is he's like a son of man. So a human son. He sees this one. And and where is this human son? In the middle of the lampstands. In the middle of the church. According to Jesus down in verse 20, and we'll get down there in a bit, The seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's marvelous. For a couple of reasons. One is because we see Jesus moving in the middle of the lampstands, we realize that's always where we seem to find Him, in the church. Moving about the church. Connected to the church. Concerned for the church. Engaged and involved with the church. I am reminded of this constantly in our fellowship. That Jesus is here. And that there is not a person here that He doesn't absolutely love. Sometimes I can be unloving. Sometimes I can be unlovely. Unlovable. But Jesus always loves me. And and, and it changes my perspective. And it truly does. And just confessing this to you all, hey, I'm a human being. There are times where I get frustrated with people. You know, we have the old saying, if it weren't for all the people, ministry would be fantastic. But the truth is, I have to learn, and I am thankful that I'm continually doing this. I have to learn to look at every single person in our fellowship and say, Jesus loves her. Jesus loves him. Man, Jesus, who knows people better than any of us, would look around this room tonight and He would not see a single person that He doesn't love. And that to me is is wonderful. Because it changes my perspective. He's walking in the middle of the lampstands. Why? Because the lampstands matter to Him. Because the church matters to Him. You know, it's interesting, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is out searching the world for those who would come to faith. But Jesus is in the lampstands. Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is always among His people. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 19, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by My Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in My name, 
I am there in their midst. And we forget that. We play church games. We were talking about this today, how how many churches I have been a part of, I have been on staff or in ministry and involved, and how what the, the church game is, is when you offend or when you bother me or when you're not towing the line, you're out. Find another church. I've seen it on church staffs, in ministry, where someone's just not doing what the senior pastor wanted, so he's fired. Or she's gone. And I think that is just not Jesus. He says where two or three are gathered, I'm there. So if Jesus is there, and we have conflict or problem or issue, let's invite Him into it. And let's find our resolution, and let's come to agreement, because again, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Jesus cares about the church. He's moving in the middle of the lampstands. Always is. He's at the address of our distress. Jesus is in the place of our persecution. He's at the heart of our hardship. And for these seven churches to hear this, to hear the seven churches named, to discover that the seven churches are called seven lampstands, and to realize that Jesus is moving among them, is to say, He's with you in this. Not just John who's a fellow partaker and fellow sufferer. Jesus Christ is with you right now in everything you're going through as a church, in families. Man, look at Him. Look at Jesus. I'm not just talking about in the passage before us. I'm talking about in our fellowship. This fellowship will grow and be blessed and be a warm and loving place if we continue to look at Jesus. And notice, by the way, how He's looking at each one of us. See, I can can see Jesus looking at Pam. And it makes me love Pam more. Because I look at him looking at her and I see the love in his eyes and I'm like, man, he really digs her. So I'm going to love her too. I can, I can look at Glenn. I pick on Glenn all the time mainly because you're right in my line of sights, bro. But I can look at Glenn and see Jesus looking at Glenn and go, Jesus really loves Glenn. i got to love him too. And that's not hard to do. But when I see Jesus loving anybody, I see Jesus looking at Dwayne. I see right there, Dwayne. See, this is the great thing about my glasses is now I can see beyond the second row. I see Jesus looking at Dwayne and I see the love in his eyes for you and I think, i got to love Dwayne. That's, that's a life-changing perspective. Jesus in and among the lampstands. Look at him. Just keep looking at Him. Yeah, but I don't like her. Then don't look at her. Look at Him looking at her. And it will change you. Man, and when you find yourself struggling or hurting or suffering in the world, remember where you find Jesus. Right here. I'm not just talking about in the sanctuary on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. I'm talking about in the church. You need help? Go to the church. Go to brothers and sisters, gather together, two or three, in His name, He's there. You can always find Jesus among the lampstands. But here's the other remarkable thing here. Seven churches, seven lampstands. Last week, what did we talk about the lampstand in the temple represented? The Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. If the lampstand is the Holy Spirit... But here the lampstands are the churches. What does that tell us? The Spirit is in the church. 
And there is a deep, inseparable, intimate connection of the Spirit of the living God in the church. Which is why it's never a good idea for a Christian to go solo. Or to go rogue. I'm going to do this on my own. Hey, the Spirit is in the church. The Spirit is with God's people. You need, I need God's people. I, you know, you all know this. I've been in ministry now coming up on 30 years. You'd think by then, if, if God's people were a tiresome lot, that I would find a way to do something else. I would drive for UPS. I don't know. I would do something. But I have found again and again that this is where Jesus is. And this is where His Spirit is. And there is that intimate connection of the Holy Spirit, again, deep and inseparable and intimate. So intimate, in fact, that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is describing the Antichrist. And describing how Antichrist wants to just blow on the scene. Describing how evil wants to just smash the world. More than taking away civility toward Republicans, what, what the devil wants to do... See, I just throw in those little political jarbs, you know, barbs every now and then just for me. But what the devil wants to do is just wash over this world with bitterness and evil. But he's restrained. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.6, you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. That is the Antichrist. He's going to be revealed. That time's coming. I don't believe we'll be here. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. But He will be revealed. And then Paul says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only He who now restrains, holds back that evil, He who now restrains will do so until He's taken out of the way. Who is He talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When's the Holy Spirit taken out of the way? I believe when the church is taken out of the way. When the church is raptured, so intimate is the connection of the Spirit and the church that when the church goes, the Holy Spirit goes as well. And this world will fall headlong into evil. Because there will be no more restraint. The church will not be here. As imperfect as the church may be, we will not be here to try and restrain or hold back the tide of evil. But the only power we have to do that is the Spirit. In us and among us, The lamp stands. The light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. For a time. Jesus also said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Well, that sounds like the lamp stand, doesn't it? Central shaft, a vine going up the middle and then branching off from that the six arms of the candles and the middle candle making seven all together. You've got the beautiful lampstand, picture of the Holy Spirit, picture of the church, picture of the Spirit in the church, which is why Jesus said, He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. The lampstands. Church, the Spirit, intimately connected. Jesus moving among the lampstands. I saw him. Mm. Jesus used the phrase "Son of Man" more for himself than any other phrase. That's that's his choice phrase for himself in his first coming. And the word is only used. The phrase "Son of Man" is only used twice in the Revelation. Here, where he says, "I saw one like a son of man." 
And then in Revelation 14, 14, it says, I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. I believe again there is Jesus having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Why? Well, that's Revelation 14, so you're going to have to wait for that. But John turns and immediately he sees one like a son of man, a, a human son, a human being standing there moving in the lampstands. And you Bible students, you may know this, son of man has two real strong meanings behind it. One is it's his humanity. He is a son of man. He was born into the world. The world, the Word became flesh, born of humans, walking among humans, Himself being fully man, Son of Man. But Son of Man also speaks of His messianic nature. That is, He is Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, we looked at Sunday. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so the old rabbis would say, the Son of Man, that's Messiah. That's Messiah. Which is part of the reason Jesus called himself Son of Man. It (laughs) roiled the Jewish leadership. keeps calling himself Son of Man. Who does he think he is? Messiah? Or maybe Ezekiel? Because Ezekiel called himself, or was called Son of Man quite a bit. But Jesus said in Matthew 18.11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The Son of Man who comes, the Messiah, one like the Son of Man. There He is. There is Messiah, John writes. Messiah the Savior. The Son of Man who came to save the lost. Which is why the crowds went before Him as He came into Jerusalem riding on that donkey. They were shouting, Hosanna! To the Son of David, which means, in essence, please save us. Please save us. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Please save us. Save us. One like a Son of Man. Messiah. Savior. You ever stopped and thought about what He saved you from? I got saved. We like to say colloquially. He saved me. Yeah, I went to church and got saved. What did He save you from? Our goofs, our gaffes, our slips and trips and blunders? Did He save me from a bad hair day or a parking ticket? What did He save me from? Gang, He saved me from my sin. My sin that would kill me for eternity. My sin that was filthy, bloody, unholy, wicked, death-dealing... He saved us from sin. People don't understand what that means in this world. He saved me from wickedness. He pulled me out of the rotting grave. Which is where my sin had me headed. It's where all sin has people headed. It's why we die. It's why there are funerals and memorial services and death and sorrow in the world. Because of sin. And we need to, we need to be clear about that. Because when we're proclaiming the gospel, it's the gospel of salvation from sin. Well, if my sin's not that big a deal, He saved me because, you know, I'm dumb. I forget to tie my shoe sometimes. If that's the depth of salvation, I'll walk around without laces. It's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. And for Christians especially to make light of sin or to normalize it as, ah, well, sweep it under the carpet. Don't worry about it. Just ignore it. Hey, It denies the seriousness, listen, the seriousness of God on the cross. 
Now, I need to take a sidestep here from the Son of Man and just tell you all, I had at least two different people come up to me Sunday morning and say, listen, I'm confused about this God on the cross thing. You're saying, different from my Christian tradition, and I've heard this my whole life, that God and Jesus really weren't separated on the cross, that it was God on the cross the whole time, then how come Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I I thought we covered that. But I'm starting to realize that just because I mentioned it one time doesn't mean it's always heard. There may even be something I said in the last half hour that you missed. I'd be surprised. But you know, we all do that. We sit there in sermons sometimes and we and then something is said and we go off on this tangent and we're thinking about that and we're and we're in spirit, you know, with the Lord. And then we're like, Where is he? What's he talking about? Oh, he's still in verse twelve, not a problem. <laughs> Let me just make this very clear. The reason why Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is twofold. Number one, Jesus was fully man and fully God, and in fully man he felt forsaken. Wouldn't you? Of course. The, the, the sense, the emotionality of what was taking place and to be up on that cross would be a sense of forsakenness. But He was also fully God at the same time. So what is He doing? He's pointing to Psalm 22. Which the first verse of Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus is on the cross quoting Scripture because like a good rabbi, He's saying, go to this passage, this is what's taking place right now. What David prophesied a thousand years ago, read it and check out what's taking place. As He's on the cross, He's saying, let's have a moment of Bible study. Psalm 22. That's me. This was prophesied. This was declared. Read the psalm. Does that make sense? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was God on the cross. And God died on the cross. And God rose from the dead. Because it was God who loved you that much. Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, son of man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So a human son, John turns and looks, there in the lampstands, a human son with a robe reaching to His feet. Why a robe? Well, He not only looks like a human son, He looks like an honorable justice. An honorable justice. By the way, in watching all of the attacks on our most recent Supreme Court justice, I I thought about this the other day, that, wow, yeah, he's on the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court. How is he ever going to live down all the things that have been said about him, all the vile things and, and things that people are still trying to say. Yeah, he's he's a justice on the Supreme Court, but there's a large percentage of this country that does not see him as honorable. Listen. Brett Kavanaugh did not face half what Jesus faced. The shame, the anger, the vitriol, Think about the talk that went around Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion and afterwards. Oh, I guess he wasn't what we thought. He must have done some pretty bad stuff for them to do that. 
And all of that was poured onto Jesus. And yet He is the honorable judge. Why? Because it's who He is. It's who He is. It doesn't matter what people say. It's who He is. And in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. And He said, He gave Him authority. Jesus said, He gave Him authority to execute judgment because (laughs) He's the Son of Man. The human Son who is an honorable judge. Robed like a judge would be robed. And wearing a gold sash across His chest. John says. Girded across his chest with a golden sash. That would be, number three, like a high priest. So we're building this picture. A human son, an honorable judge, now a high priest with that golden sash. You might say, wait a minute, um, point of order. Aren't sashes usually worn around the waist? You know, What's the deal with the sash worn around the chest? This is more than a sash. This is what we would call a golden ephod. It's an ephod. What do you mean? Listen to this. Exodus chapter 28, verse 6. I'll just read it to you. You can always turn there, but I'll be done before you get there. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet, and fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends, that, that it may be joined, and the skillful woven band which is on it shall be of a, shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold and blue and scarlet material, fine and fine twisted linen. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of the names on one stone. On one, which would be on one shoulder, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, so you are to engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. Set them in filigree settings of gold. Put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stone, stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And on he goes describing the golden ephod. It's what the high priest wore. And he wore it and had the twelve precious stones on it. Of the twelve tribes of Israel, each stone representing a tribe, each one had a name in it, and you had the onyx stones on the shoulders, and it's of this beautiful material of woven blue and scarlet and twisted linen and gold. Guess what? This sash, this ephod, is all gold. It's just pure gold. Because this ephod, this golden sash, is one of a kind for a one of a kind high priest. There is no one that has ever been like him or will ever be like him. You see, the Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 10.11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It just covered them. But the sin was still there. But He, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He is the highest priest because He made the highest sacrifice Himself. So this this human son, this honorable judge, this high priest, also has, note this, verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. He has hair 
as white as the Ancient of Days. Note that, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And in that passage, Daniel sees the Son of Man, or one like a Son of Man, Jesus, approaching the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, but here, Jesus is the one who looks exactly like Yahweh, because He is Yahweh. Yeshua is Yahweh. Yahweh is Yeshua. Now, I look like my dad. Some of you have seen pictures. I've got this bizarre wedding picture from Hannah's wedding. And I'm in a black suit. My dad's in a black suit. And I'm standing here. And he's maybe five yards away standing over here. And we're both looking the same direction. And it's like twins. I showed my dad the picture. I said, how could you do this to me? What is this? Now, I I kid because I think my dad is a pretty handsome guy. (laughs) But I look so much like him, and yet I'm not him. This one, his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, is the Ancient of Days. He is the Father. The Father is the Son. And John sees Him. And you can almost hear Jesus speaking over all of this. John 14, 9, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. John's describing Him here. It's another clue to the triune nature of the One who is Almighty God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And John sees Him, sees the Ancient of Days, now in the person of the human Son, the Son of Man, walking in the lampstand with the robe, looking like the high priest with that golden ephod. And and now, there's one other thing, His hair, white as wool, as snow. Does that remind you of anything else in Scripture? You see, the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Salvation. We see salvation when we look at Jesus. We are reminded of salvation even here in this one whose hair is so white, so beautifully white. Number five, we also see one that looks like a hot-blooded judge. His feet, no, before his feet, his eyes, (laughs) his eyes were like a flame of fire. Eyes like a flame of fire. You know the Greek construction of this actually would probably better translate his eyes shot fire. Now there are a couple of times I upset Cheryl and I think I saw that. (laughs) His eyes shot fire. The idea here, get this, this is the picture of Jesus we don't often think about. I can see Him in the robe. I can see Him with the sash. I can even imagine Him with with the white hair. And that's beautiful. But now suddenly we get into some aspect of the character and the nature of a glorified Christ. And it starts to get a little frightening, folks. His eyes shot fire. The idea is fiery indignation. He is not happy here. This is not Jesus going, five loaves and two fish? You, you feed them. This is not Jesus hanging out with the apostles walking the green grass of the Judean hills. This is an angry Jesus. Well, what, what's, he, what's He angry about? <laughs> All but two of the churches will receive sharp corrections. 
Jesus comes to send letters to the churches, encouragement to the churches, but gang, part of the encouragement is serious correction because Jesus is a father who is passionate about his children. You know the old, wait till your father gets home. My mom said that a couple of times when she just couldn't deal with us. Wait till your dad gets home. You know, when we hear the door open, we'd be like, ah! I love that scene in A Christmas Story, you know, where, where he, he get, Ralphie gets into a fight, and he's up on his bed, and he's just weeping, because he knows he's dead. His little brother Randy knows he's dead. The door opens, he hears his dad coming in, he's like, that's it, I'm dead, he's going to find out what I did, the awful things I did, the things I said, you know. Jesus shows up as the Father who loves His children enough to reprove, He says, to reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, Revelation 3.19, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. His eyes shoot fire. They are like flames of fire because Jesus is fired up. He's fired up about what He's seeing happen to the churches and what He's seeing happen in the churches. And we need to see and be aware of both. Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. We'll see that in a moment here. His eyes were like flaming torches, Daniel said. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Daniel saw Jesus. And now John is seeing Jesus glorified once again and describing to us almost the same vision that Daniel had. So understand that the same eyes of Jesus that we can imagine looking on with laughter, the same eyes of Jesus that we can imagine looking on with the intensity of a a rabbi, the same eyes of Jesus that we see looking with love at Peter even in the moment he denied him. Those same eyes look like flames of fire. He looks with love. His eyes shoot with fire. And in verse 15, his feet, his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. So he's still the hot-blooded judge here. Hot-blooded, but fired up because, see, bronze is, that's the metal in the Bible most associated with judgment. The bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice was made of bronze. Bronze is that picture of judgment. The brazen altar. And yet, his feet now look like brazen bronze that that was made to glow as if in a furnace. Why? Why as if in a furnace? Because Jesus is the judge who walks out the judgment. He is the judge who takes the judgment. He is the judge who goes into the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story from Daniel chapter 3. Along about verse 25, after the the three Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to that ugly statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they're thrown in there, and Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's looking, and he says, Look, how many people did we throw in there? I, I just love the story because here's the king. How many people did we chuck in? Three, Your, your Highness. I see four men loosed 
and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth was like a son of God. It's because he was. Jesus in the furnace. And I remind you again, and the churches needed to hear this, maybe you do tonight, that John was not the only fellow partaker of tribulations. Jesus could say to the early church, and could say to us tonight, I walked the fiery path of judgment all the way into the furnace of Calvary. Feet of burnished bronze. And His voice... His voice was like the sound of many waters. I would say like a hurricane force storm surge. Which we need to be praying for the folks in the panhandle of Florida tonight because they're going through it. Florida's taking a battering as the hurricane comes. You know, it's so interesting. All of the recent stuff from typhoons to hurricanes to tsunamis And Jesus said in Luke 21, men would be perplexed at the waves of the sea. I think we're seeing birth pangs at at rapid pace happening in our world. We'll get into more of that as we get further into the revelation of Jesus. As He reveals what's coming. But hurricane force storm surge. They say a hurricane sounds like nothing else. Anybody here ever been in an actual hurricane? You have? A couple of you have. So you can probably attest to it. It's a horrifying sound. The wind whipping around, almost screaming in, in the, the intensity of it. And, and my point in saying that is simply this. This voice like the sound of many waters is not like, listen. It's not like Rick's phony fountain. The sound of many waters is not like Elijah's still small voice. It's not like David's quiet waters that the, the good shepherd leads me beside. I like that, Jesus. Leads me beside quiet waters. That's good. This is Jesus who is opening his mouth and think Niagara Falls. 12 million cubic feet of water per minute pour over the falls. To stand by Niagara Falls, you might as well not even talk to someone because you can't hear them. Just loud, the tumult, the the sound. This is Jesus speaking, and the voice here is not silent, it is not calm, it is not quiet. It is tumultuous, it is a great noise, and it's also prophetic. Because Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 43, verse 1, He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel, was coming from the way of the east, and His voice was like the sound of many waters. Same voice. Same God, same glory returning from the east. This is Jesus coming. That sound of many waters, the Hebrew translates the sound of exceeding, abundant waters. And Ezekiel also writes, and the earth shone with His glory. Wow, speaking of shining glory, continuing into verse 16, in His right hand He held seven stars. How many of you have ever held one? Can you imagine trying to hold a star? It's crazy. Our sun is a star. And He had seven in His hand. So a handful of stars, if you're keeping track of all these different things as we've been going through them, a handful of stars, hurricane-forced storm surge, just, I'm using the letter H throughout. I thought that was kind of creative. Anyway, a handful of stars. What's that all about? 
J. Vernon McGee has an opinion on that. He says, well, the stars are actually pastors. Pastors. Because further down, he's going to mention down in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The angels of the seven churches. So McGee says they're pastors. I like that. There's something angelic about... you know, No. <laughs> the angels are pastors of the seven churches, and it's an interesting perspective because angelos in the Greek simply means messenger. So an angelos, a pastor, could be an angelos if he was simply a messenger. He doesn't have to be angelic to be a messenger. He can wear flannel. Doug, I'm going to try and work flannel into every teaching. Yeah, okay. Um, so maybe angelic, angelos, messenger, pastor of the church, so the seven churches each have their own angelos. I have a different opinion. I think it is, as he says. I think that every single one of these seven churches in Asia Minor had their own angel. I think this church has its own angel. Which is kind of cool, if you think about it. Such is the love and the affection of Jesus to make sure we are kept watch over. And so each church has its own angel. Job 38, God is speaking to Job and He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In Job 38, 7, He says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when the Bible refers to stars, oftentimes those stars are angels, actual angels. And so these angelos, as Jesus mentions in verse 20, these angels of the churches, apparently, what it looks like to me is they're assigned both locally, you know, to Ephesus and Smyrna and the other churches. Each local church has its own angel. And historically, the angels are assigned to the church. They are ministers of the church. Ministers of those who have been saved, the Bible tells us. So the church across 2,000 years has had its angels. Angels in assignment to care for and to watch over the church. I think if you've never read This Present Darkness, you need to read it. If you've never read Piercing the Darkness, those two books written, This Present Darkness was 1986 when Frank Peretti wrote that and busted wide open this this reality that the Bible has talked about for 2,000 years. The reality that angels are in battle in the spiritual realm all around us and that our prayers do have impact. So again, if you haven't read This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness, must reading. Excellent books. Fictional, but excellent books in in how they kind of present these things. But the angels of the church for 2,000 years, angels of this church, angels over the churches of the Revelation. Now, watch this. The sword comes out of his mouth. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This is where you really got to see the Jesus who's standing before John. This is where you begin to realize the seriousness of rebellion against God. Of a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. The sword coming out of his mouth, clearly that is a picture of the Word of God. Of the Word that He speaks of the power of the Word. The the sword is called the Word. The Word is called a sword in Scripture. But this sword is razor sharp. It's two-edged. And it's cutting. And my friends, stay with me for a moment on this. This is a killing sword. It's a killing sword. 
How do you know that? I would even call it, if you're taking notes, a hacking sword. And it will hack up any cell phone that goes off (laughs) during Rick's teaching. It's a hacking sword. Think Lord of the Rings. Think Aragorn with his big old sword. Think of him hacking and hewing away at the vile enemies. This is a hacking sword. Listen carefully to this. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So we read that and go, Well, that's cool. I, I, the, the, the Word of God is a sword that can excise and, and it's surgical in its use. And, but now, Rick, you're saying it's a hacking sword? No, I'm not. I'm saying that this sword that John sees coming out of Jesus' mouth is a hacking sword. It's a different word. The word for sword in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 that we talk about, that the Word of God is piercing and does divide out soul and spirit and does surgically work in our lives as God sanctifies us, that sword is called a machaira. And a machaira is a precise dagger. It's very short, very sharp, and it's very precise. It's for precision cutting. The word for sword in the Revelation, when John sees this sword coming out of the mouth of Christ, is rampaya. And rampaya is the long sword or the Thracian javelin that was used for throwing in war. This is a big sword that did serious damage. You didn't take this sword for sensitive cutting. You took this sword to lop off heads. To kill, to destroy. This sword is mentioned five times in the Revelation and every single time the Rompea sword is mentioned, every time it's in the context of warfare and killing. And I didn't really want to talk about that tonight. Because I like talking about Jesus on the shores of the Galilee. Around the campfire. You know, walking the Arbel Pass. That's the Jesus I like to talk about. The grace and the love and the mercy. Even Jesus on the cross, in His resurrection, showing up and asking for a piece of fish. That's the Jesus I want to talk about. But this Jesus, the same Jesus by the way, In His second coming, He comes mighty. He comes with a sword that is not to be trifled with. Listen to what that sword does. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Which says, from His mouth comes a sharp rompea, a sharp sword. It's that huge cutting sword, killing sword. From His mouth comes this sword. Why? So that with it He may strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And the winepress, my friends, is a picture of blood. This Jesus frightens me. Just a little bit. I read this and I think, Oh my Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, There is no handling this weapon without cutting yourself. For it has no back to it. It is all edge. The Word of Christ, somehow or other, is all edge. And this sword that Jesus wields when He returns is not a sword that you want 
dealing with your life. The Machaira, the sword of the Word of God, yes, the sword that does cut out soul and spirit, which we all need. I need less of soul man and more of spirit man. I need that division. I need that discernment. And that's helpful to me. And yeah, sometimes it hurts a little bit. It's surgical. And it heals well. This sword is a killing sword. This is the King of Kings returning in full glory and He is indignant with a rebellious world and He's coming to put an end to all evil and He has every right to. And if you were at all upset, and I just use it because it's the most recent example, but if you were at all upset about the circus in our Senate last the last couple of weeks, and truly, regardless... I, not to get political one-sided or the other. I think people on both sides of the political spectrum were watching this going, this shouldn't be done this way. This is not how you treat people. And if you have been upset in the last year by injustice that we've seen happen in our world, by hatred and by killing and by meanness and by the ugliness and the, and the increase of lawlessness which is causing most people's love to grow cold, if that bothers you at all, understand Jesus is incensed by it. And He will deal with it. But, He gave every last drop of His blood in His first coming to save you from it. To save you from what sin requires in terms of judgment. And His face, go back now to Revelation 1, His face was shining like the sun in all its strength, like the heat of the sun at midday. The heat of the sun... Man, at high noon, burning with relentless power and intensity and judgment. And remember again the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 43, verse 2, and the earth shone with His glory. Man, He holds in His right hand seven stars, and yet His face is like the sun. Make that comparison between how we view our sun and how we view the stars. Now I understand our sun is a star. But in terms of proximity and in terms of the picture that that John is painting here so clearly, his face is as bright and as hot as the sun, even as he has the stars in his hand. Verse 17. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Uh Yeah. Because he saw this. We can only describe what John describes that he saw. We can only read the words and try to get a sense of how awesome this scene was. And by the way, what we just took 45 minutes or an hour to read through in this description of Jesus, John saw like that. So what we pour over and study and think through, John turns to see and he sees and drops. And I believe, and I can't prove it, but I believe in that moment John flatlined. I saw him and I fell at his feet like a dead man. I think John just went down. You know what's interesting? So did Daniel. I mean, making the comparison we've been making, Daniel chapter 10, verse 8, in another vision, I was left alone, he saw, he said, and I saw this great vision, and yet no strength was left in me. My natural color turned to a deathly pallor. I retained no strength. I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Daniel flatlined. Daniel saw Jesus and boom. 
fell down like a dead man. Stephen saw Jesus. You remember? Stephen was about to be stoned. And he looks up and he says, Whoa, I see the heavens open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Standing, not seated. Standing up. You get the sense that Jesus is cheering him on. But interesting, Stephen sees him. And before the stones kill Stephen, Stephen drops dead. He saw Jesus. And I think that took him out and Jesus just took him home. And now John sees Jesus. And it's so important to note that this is what happens when you see God. You die. You you have to die. God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Moses is like, show me your glory. I'll tell you what, I'll let you watch my glory as it trails off. I'll show you my goodness. You can watch the hem of my robe, but you're not going to look at my face, bro, because if you do, down you go, and i got no deliverer. You can't look at God and live, and you might say, well, then why would I want to see Jesus? Because the old man's got to die. The old woman, no offense, ladies, but she's got to go. The old self, the old ways, the old sin, the pain, the sorrow, the transience of our life, the despair, it's all got to die. Because 1 Peter 7.24 tells us He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. We die to sin. Like John, we go down before the vision of Jesus and Charles Spurgeon said we are never so much alive as when we are dead at His feet. Amen to that. Because when I die in the sight of Jesus, it's to all that old filth. It's gone. And this mighty, amazing, powerful, studly Jesus shows up. And while I will be trembling to see Him this way, I will not be trembling in fear that that hacking sword is about to take off my head. I will be trembling in the thrill of my God. And my Jesus, who raised me up alive. He placed His right hand on me, John says, saying, do not be afraid. What a marvelous thing for this vision of Jesus to say. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, we talked about on Sunday, and the living one. That's perpetual, by the way. The living one is ongoing and forever, never to stop. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Keys, my friends, not to lock you in, but to let you out. Keys of release. He's talking, remember, he's talking to the church here. I got the keys. Some of you, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea, some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to die martyrs. Some of you are going to die of illness. Some will die of difficulties in life. Some will die of old age. In fact, you know what? Everybody in every single one of these churches died. It's going to happen. But I'm the living one. I got the keys. I got the keys. I used to do that to my brother. Oh, drove him nuts. If I could get home before Ron from school in the afternoon, run up the drive and I see Ron walking up the hill... 
And I'd go haul and he'd see me and he'd start hauling because he knew what I was going to do. I would go into the house, close the door and lock it. <laughs> and he'd be pounding on the door and I'd go to the window and go, I got the keys. <laughs> Jesus has the keys, but he's not shaking him to keep us out of heaven, but to let us in. He has the keys not to keep us in death, but to let us out. And brothers and sisters, there are family that we have and friends who have gone on before us. They have. And it hurt. And we're sorrowful. And even to this day, we miss them. I got the keys. As a matter of fact, their spirits are already out. For when Jesus paid the redemptive price at Calvary, He led, well, it says in Ephesians 4.8, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives. Says this expression, he ascended. What does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Jesus, in those three days, shows up in Hades. And all those who had passed away at that time, all those believers prior to the cross, all those faithful, Jesus shows up and goes, I got the keys. And He let them out. And ever since then, anyone who has died in faith in Jesus Christ, to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be at home with the Lord. I got the keys. Psalm 16.10, David wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's a prophecy of Jesus, and it's a promise that David was assured of. And you and I, we are assured of this as well, because he's got the keys. And he says, therefore, write the things which you have seen. What had John seen? Well, we just saw what he had seen, Jesus in his resurrected glory. And Jesus says, and I want you to write the things which are. That's coming. Chapters 2 and 3. The church age. And then Jesus says, and write the things which will take place after these things. Chapters 4 and 5. That beautiful heavenly vision. The church is there. Chapter 6 through 18. The earthly tribulation. The church is gone. Chapter 19. The glorious return of Jesus. And the church comes with Him. Chapter 20. The millennial kingdom and final judgment. And we rule and reign the church with Jesus in the righteousness of the Lord for a thousand years. Chapters 21 and 22. The new heaven. The new earth. The new Jerusalem. And we will live with Jesus forever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that You will bring at least this vision of the revelation. That You will give us revelation and understanding. Father, first of all, how serious this really is. That our Christianity is not a game. It's not a social club. It's not a a distraction or a diversion from the more important things of life. This is life. And Jesus, You are the only hope of eternal life. And as surely as You came in Your first coming, Lord Jesus, as surely as You fulfilled every prophecy of Your coming, You will fulfill these as well. Lord, we take You at Your Word. We know a day is coming when the entire world 
will see you coming in the clouds with great glory, and they will mourn over Him as one mourns over an only son. Lord Jesus, my heart's desire, out of all of this study, beyond revelation, beyond understanding, beyond, Lord, increasing our passion for You, my heart's desire in this study is that one or two or three or ten or fifty or a hundred people will find salvation in Jesus Christ. That's really what this is about and this is why we're here, Lord, to preach the Gospel. Father, I pray tonight if there's anyone among us who has never given their life to You, who has not accepted You as Lord and Savior, if there's anyone here who finds the vision terrifying, but longs to be led by quiet waters, by a gentle and loving shepherd, I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, You will convict hearts in this room and draw us out of ourselves and draw those who need the salvation of Jesus to come to Him. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here among us tonight who's just, man, sorrowful, maybe going through tribulations, maybe despairing or hurting, Lord, will You invite them to come and to pray and to be loved. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, do it tonight. Let tonight be the beginning of your salvation for the rest of your life to be a child of the King. We'll be up front and you can come forward. We'll pray with you and you can begin that walk right now and be saved for all eternity. And I say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus already, but you've been struggling with the whole thing, if you just want to pray, please come forward. Don't wait until a Sunday. Don't wait until a different advantageous moment. Just come and let's pray together. And let's ask the Lord Jesus to do in your heart and in your life what He desires to do. Please come. Let's stand up and sing together.